Hey everyone, welcome. I'm uh, I'm Brett McCarty, a PhD candidate at the Divinity School, and it's a joy to welcome you to this uh, Theology, Mass, and Culture seminar um, on such a beautiful day. I hope you at least enjoy the view of the outside if you don't get to enjoy outside itself uh, some later. Um, it's a real privilege today to welcome Dr. Randy Maddox, who is the William Kellen Quick Professor of Wesleyan and Methodist Studies here at the Divinity School at Duke. Um, uh, Dr. Maddox has long-standing scholarly interest in the theology of John and Charles Wesley, and also in the kind of theological developments in the later Methodist and Wesleyan tradition. He serves as a general editor in the Wesley Works Editorial Project, and he heads a project that makes uh, available all the verses of Charles Wesley online at a website. Uh, you should look at the Center for Studies in the Wesleyan Tradition here at the uh, Divinity School. He runs that project. Um, He's the author of what I think is the best book on contemporary Wesleyan theology, Responsible Grace, John Wesley's Practical Theology. He's the guy on Wesleyan theology, so it's a real treat to have him here. And moreover, in his numerous essays and chapters that he's written, he's developed a scholarly interest in Wesleyan approaches to health and health care. So one of his articles is entitled, John Wesley on Holistic Health and Healing, and another on the Methodist Reception of John Wesley's Interest in, med- in Medicine. So given that Duke University was founded as a Methodist institution, the Divinity School is a Methodist seminary, and that we're meeting right now in a medical center, I can think of no one better suited to come and talk with us today. Um, his presentation is entitled, A Theology of Care for the Body, Wesleyan Trajectories. So join me in welcoming Dr. Maddox. Uh, this session to make possible others to listen in uh, on this conversation and scholarship, so just keep that in mind uh, when you try to spout off something uh, that maybe you don't want on the internet, so thanks. Uh, <laughs> okay, friends, it is good to be with you, and I hope you have a copy of the handout. It, you guys need copies here? Yeah, we'll, um, I will move through it quickly. Some of the quotes are there for you to, to watch later or whatever, but it will save me having to uh, put some things up on the overhead. Really what I want to do is to help make sense of the notion of Wesley's interest in medicine and then some of the things that have flown from that. And it becomes kind of a reverse window to come back to the issues we face today in in some sense, I think, from the other side. I call it trajectories because I will be trying to show at least four ways in which there's development taking place in Wesley himself and in the Wesleyan uh, tradition as we do this. Most folk, when they think of John Wesley, think of him as the warm-hearted evangelist, the preacher who goes around preaching all over England, Scotland, and Wales, uh, and starts traditions, the Methodist churches and the full Wesleyan body that we look to today, the World Methodist Council, incorporating some almost 20 million worshipers globally. Or they think of Wesley as the hyperactive organizer on his horse riding 250,000 miles during his ministry, organizing little societies everywhere, etc. But if you were to ask, what is the book that John Wesley published that went through more editions and stayed in print continuously longer than any other work that he did, it actually is neither his sermons nor his New Testament notes nor any of the things he wrote on theology it was instead a book he wrote on medicine. Uh, the earliest edition of it called a collection of receipts. You need Receipts there is really the word for recipe in the 18th century, and it was the word used in medicine for a prescription. So this is a collection of prescriptions or guides for health care. 
the word physic, which we'll use often today, was used in the 18th century to mean medicine, but in the specific sense of giving medical advice. A physician was not the apothecary where you went to get the pills, and it was not the barber surgeon who did the surgery. It was the one who gave you advice on what you needed and then uh, sent you to the right place to, to get those things. And the question is, why would John Wesley, the leader of a movement of religious renewal in the Church of England, write a book like this? Well, some folk, when they look at it, kind of snicker and say, well, this just shows that John Wesley was, you know, he was kind of easily taken advantage of. He's riding around talking to all these men and women in their homes, and he, he gets on to all of these home remedies, and he's trying to make a quick buck with it or something, so that you even get a writer like Ronald Stone, I give you the quote on the paper, who publishes a book with Abingdon Press. So this is the Methodist Publishing House publishing it in 2001, who describes this collection of receipts as a collection of folklore prescriptions for various ailments. Its support came from testimonies of, that certain folk remedies were... It revealed Wesley's reliance on testimony and sometimes credulity and belief in what the folk tradition contained. Well, there's scholars that have been looking at this question. I'm right now, in fact, in the middle of editing what will become an entire volume in the Wesley Works Project devoted simply to his medical writings. Because this isn't the only one. There's at least eight different items we'll put in it. Uh, and as we've looked at it, we've become intrigued by several things. One being that if you actually look at what were the source for the recipes or prescriptions here, and I give you, I give you a few here on the page, or if you look on page five of the handout, I'll give, I give you some samples as well. And you'll look at them and you can see how someone might think they're, uh, you know, home remedies, put a roasted fig or onion in your ear, that kind of thing. But actually, we've found that we can trace almost 50% of these back to standard medical care books of the day, that Wesley is taking them direct out of these books. So he, it's not just that he's collecting home remedies, he's distilling down. Well, why would Wesley be reading medical books? Well, let me remind you about clergy education in England at the beginning of the 18th century, the 1700s. In the vast majority of England, the only person living in the village scattered across England that had a university education at all would be the parish priest. And because of that, they built into the curriculum at Oxford and at Cambridge that you had to study medicine as part of your preparation to become a parish priest. You had to read the standard texts on medicine. Now, some may then, in addition, go ahead and do further degrees as a medical doctor, but all those training for ministry had to have at least the baseline of knowledge. John Wesley, we've got a list of the six or seven books he read during his Oxford training. And there were actually guidelines in the manuals of the day that were used for how to be a priest that stressed that one of your expectations was that in addition to leading morning and evening prayers, leading the Sunday services, that you would be, make yourself available to your parish to give medical advice. You would be the physician in town. So this was a assumed part of the vocation of an Anglican priest at the beginning. When John Wesley, after finishing his degrees, teaching for a little while at Lincoln College, Oxford, when he decides he's going to become a missionary and come over to Georgia, he's not over here a long time. It, it proves to be a failure for several reasons. But interestingly, the first book he buys to prepare himself to come over is a book on what are the herbs 
that have medicinal value in North America so that it'd be prepared when he gets over here as an assigned parish priest to give this kind of medical advice. When he comes back and makes the decision not to return to his teaching job at Oxford or to take a parish as just a regular Anglican priest, but decides to commit his, the rest of his life to what will be a parachurch ministry, a ministry of organizing renewal movements, not opposed to the church, but to be kind of something you do in addition to going Sunday mornings to church, that you come to these midweek meetings. And to do this then, meaning he's coming in as an ordained Anglican priest into the parish of an existing priest doing ministry when you're not supposed to do that. You're, you're technically breaking the rules. No one's supposed to do ministry in the parish except the assigned clergy person there. So that made the Methodist renewal a bit controversial. And he had to justify his, his rights to preach there. But what I want you to see from the handout is he also then had to justify his right to give medical advice there. So back to page one and go down to the first sets of quotes there. And it's very interesting. After Wesley, who had been studying medicine, we've actually built a list now of over 100 books on medicine he read during his life, and he subscribed to the proceedings of the Royal Academy of Science, the transactions, which up until the, 19, uh, the 1760s is where you published medical stuff as well. They didn't have their own set yet. He subscribed to them as they came out uh, monthly. And some of these come right out of those proceedings, some of these treatments. Well, when Wesley gets back and he gets a revival going, he, it's not long before he recognizes that some of the people who are coming to hear him preach in the streets and are becoming parts of the movement are from the poorer classes who don't feel comfortable going to the church which is most Anglican churches supported by the state or by the landed gentry tend to be a bit higher class and the poorest didn't feel comfortable in them. Well, that meant they didn't have access to the parish priest for medical advice. And Wesley decides that's not, that's not good. I can't just minister to their spirits. I also need to minister to their bodies. So you look at the quote there. I was still in pain for many of the poor that were sick, so much expense, so little profit, saw the poor people pining away with several families ruined and without remedy. At length, I thought of a kind of desperate expedient. I will prepare and give them physic myself. So in addition to the preaching services, he began to set up and offer medical advice. He even built clinics so that he could dispense the medicines in both Bristol and London. And in the first two years of the revival, it's only happening in Bristol and London. And John Wesley spends about six months in each, back and forth. So he becomes the, the physician for these poor folk. Now, that might have been his model for the rest of his ministry, except Methodism took off. It began to grow well there, and they began to say, we ought to send it out and start taking it other places in the world. Besides what were, I mean, London was the town. In, in John Wesley's journal, Lanier says, I'm going to town. He means I'm going to London. It was the only place that had over 50,000 inhabitants. I mean, most of Britain were smaller villages and, and places like that. But when Wesley then started traveling, when he got to the point that he's spending 10 months a year on the road, the system of him being the one to give the physic was breaking down. He's not there to give the advice. Even running the uh, dispensaries ended up finally shutting down uh, because he wasn't there to be overseeing them. But what you need to see is the collect this collection of remedies, this is Wesley putting his practice into print so that it can take place all over England. 
what you're getting in this collection are the, the advices he was giving face-to-face. The first of these is published in 1744, the year after he's, the first year that he's on the road that much. He distills them down, he puts them into a book, and he gives his assistants, that is the lay preachers that are helping him. You look at the, the next quote on the sheet. He tells them, in your ministry now, as you go all over England helping start these renewal groups, among the things you're supposed to do is leave a copy of the primitive physic in every house. So spread this medical advice. Particularly advice to folk who don't have access at this point to uh, their clergy, their priests in their parish or others. So it becomes a business of assistance. And indeed, he, may, he took it even a step further. Wesley sets up one of the early, what you might think of as parish nurse programs. Because if you look at the next quote, he says, in each society, so this would be a group of Methodists in a town. If, if you've got a town, these Methodists, they gather midweek for prayer with one another. They go to their regular church on Sunday. Most of them going to the Church of England, but they could be going to a Presbyterian or other church. It really is a parachurch group. But one of the offices in the society was the visitor of the sick, who went around to visit all the members and folks who weren't even involved in the movement that were sick and to give them medical and spiritual advice. So from its earliest years, Methodism had built into it this sense we ought to care for body and soul as holistically as we do that. In Wesley, this is reflected that in that in addition to primitive physics, he published other works, as I said. Uh, most of them abridged or translated from others. So a book from uh, Samuel Tissot, Advices with Respect to Health, the, the interesting thing about this volume is it goes into link to describe the ailment and help you make the diagnosis of what it is. The early book just said, here, if you've got this, use this. But it didn't tell you how to figure out if that's what you got. And this one does that. Uh, thoughts on the Sin of Onan? You know what the Sin of Onan is? This is a book on masturbation. <laughs> you may not know it. Wesley published it. But interesting, it's about the health dangers it's, it's trying to argue for its negative health effects and thus the need to uh, deal with that in a way to preserve the health of the young. But it's just among almost eight works he published, all of which is to show that medicine was more than just a passing interest or idiosyncrasy for Wesley. It was central to his sense of both how Christians ought to live their lives, we ought to care for our body as well as our soul, and what we ought to do in ministry. Now, Trajectory one, inculcating a theology of health. What I want you to see in this is that in some ways, while there was this expectation that Anglican priests would give medical advice, there was also a major stream in popular culture of Wesley's day that pushed against the notion of focusing too much attention on promoting health and seeing that as a spiritual commitment. This stream that flowed against it is reflected negatively in a quote that we use here from Wesley, but I want let me paint the stream first, and let me do it by using John Wesley's brother Charles to do this. So this takes over to page two in the handout. England, through up until almost 1700, the Church of England had been dominated by a reformed theology, a strong doctrine of the providence of God. And one of the things that led most folk to just assume popularly was that all major events in my life 
including all illnesses and accidents or injuries that were directly caused by God. They weren't just accidents. They were caused by God. And then the question becomes, but what's their purpose? Why would God do this? And the underlying assumption was, because God's trying to get you to get your attention off of things that are not as important, this worldly, physical, and focus on things that are more important, the spiritual, the eternal. And particularly since at this time, most Christians assumed that final salvation would be a state where we would leave our body behind to become a disembodied spirit in heaven, and indeed had come to read the whole story of salvation as if it's not that God created this world and said, wow, this is wonderful, this is what I wanted, all of this physical stuff, this is great, but rather that God had said, I need to create a place to test humans to see if they deserve to be in heaven, a state that's primarily a, taste, a state of, of challenge, of testing. Think Pilgrim's Progress here. The world in which we're born is a world full of all of those those quicksand and slough of despondency, all that stuff that could keep us from getting to our heavenly city. And then you come to look upon illness or injury as ways in which God's trying to say, hey, quit focusing on this world. Focus on the other world. Look at the way it comes through in these hymns of Charles Wesley. The first one, you're catching the general spirituality of it. It's a hymn called The Traveler. He's actually writing it having read Pilgrim's Progress. But look how he describes human life. Strangers and pilgrims here below, this earth we know is not our place, and hasten through the veil of woe, and restless to behold thy face, swift to our heavenly country move, our everlasting home above. Well, the more you think that way, then the more being alive in this world is seen primarily as, it's not good news, it's, well, I want to get assurance of salvation here, and then I want to get out. So you find Charles saying things like, what would I have on earth beneath? Pardon and an early death. Out of the veil of tears, I long on mercy's wings to fly, to leave my sins and griefs and fears, to love my God and die. The sooner you can get out of this, well, as long as you're getting out the right direction, the better. And what will it be like? A body, natural, by food and sleep sustained, to death I give. A body spiritual, endued with nobler qualities, I receive. A permanent, ethereal frame from all material dregs refined, composed of pure angelic flame, and meat for mine eternal mind. Well, all of a sudden the body is seen primarily as something that's the drag. And the sooner we get free from it. Sounds a lot more like Plato, by the way, than it does like the biblical account. But it had come to be broadly assumed in culture. And the implications for how you think of disease and, and healing, you see in the next one. A, a hymn written for a child with smallpox. It's really, it's Charles writes this when his own child has smallpox. And it's really addressed to the parents. He's trying to tell parents, how should you respond? How should you think about it when your ch child is sick? Notice the assumptions. Love inflicts the plague severe. This didn't just happen by accident. God is causing it. Love inflicts the plague severe. Love the dire distemper sins. Let thy heavenly messenger answer all thy gracious ends. 
Give us power to watch and pray, trembling at the threatened loss. Tear our hearts from earth away. Nail them to thy bleeding cross. You see what he's saying? We need to be not caught up in describing the child and focus on what is it you want. Conquering that attachment to the physical. Father, hear thy pleading, son, son of man, for us he prays. What for us he asks bestow, ours he makes his own request. Send us life or death. We know life or death from thee is best. The surrender to whatever you want to happen. So the point is, in this spirituality, to assume I ought to focus all my energies on getting well when I'm sick or in recovery from an injury is seen as the spiritually wrong approach to take. Now, if God chooses to minister to the physicians all to help you get well, that's fine. But what you ought to be focused on is what spiritual lesson can I learn from this? Now, I paint that in such detail because I want you to see this is a backdrop that probably the majority of those with whom John was, was in ministry assumed. And part of what he has to do is he has to create an alternative theology. And much of his work is not just in giving medical advice, but in convincing people you ought to be concerned about care for your body and soul. And it's a spiritual, um, it's not just a spiritual good, it's a spiritual desire, or desideratum, or desire. <coughs> so I give you a couple quotes there then from John Wesley to begin to capture this. The first one just stresses how throughout his understanding he puts the emphasis not just on knowing you're forgiven or knowing you'll get to heaven later, but that salvation is about having a a healing or a restoration of your spiritual life now. So the stress on sanctification. But notice how he connects it in the second quote. He's writing to Alexander Knox, one of his um, followers living in Ireland, who has written to talk about how he's, his spiritual life is going better, but he's still ill. And Wesley writes back to say, it's a double blessing if you give yourself up to the great physician that he may heal soul and body together, and unquestionably, this is his design. God wants to give you both inward and outward health. Now, see the stress? Unquestionably. The reason Wesley says that is he knows it's not unquestioned. You'll know, those of you working in, in medical care, that often the state of mind of the person, the whole approach to how they're looking at life will be just as crucial to how they embrace the treatment as the, phys the physical effects of whatever treatment you give. And what Wesley's trying to do here is to cultivate a sense, and he does it through his entire ministry. We ought to see care for the body as something God calls us to do and something God is committed to as well as care for the soul. And his practices then of the primitive physics, etc., then are outgrowths of that. But it's undergirded by a theology that he recognizes He's pushing against the stream of dominant uh, assumptions about health and its relationship to spiritual life in his day. Questions on that? Trajectory two. I want to go back to that quote about his concern for the poor. If you go to primitive physic, which is the title that his collection of medical remedies gets after when it gets to the fourth edition, 
he includes in there a long preface. And if you read that preface, he says some things pretty uh, negative about professional doctors <laughs> or physicians. Uh, but I, I want to put those in a bit of context for you. What Wesley is doing in the book Primitive Physic and those comments that he makes there relate to what's happening in medicine in England in the middle of the 18th century. You had just had the founding of the Royal Society for Medicine in London. And their goal was to professionalize medicine, to get out, quote, all the quacks, the barber surgeons and others that were giving medical advice that weren't trained. But in doing that, they took the approach of saying we ought to let folk practice medicine, give, give medical advice, only those who are licensed by the Royal Society. Well, as late as 1780, they published the list. I looked at the list from 1778. There were 100 names on it. 95 of them lived in London. You see, what this did is it took professional medical care out of, the, the, of access to not only those who were poor in London, but to all of the little villages around. And what they were specifically saying is they were saying to the Anglican priests in those villages, you ought to stop giving medical advice. And this is what Wesley's pushing back against. And he's arguing the only reason they're doing that is because they want to keep it private to themselves so that they can make more money. Now, I, he takes it over the top. He'll turn right around and say, Methodists, you ought always consult a good physician, one who fears God. <laughs> so uh, that, that, that they're not in it for the money. But... Just understand that when Wesley is making these criticisms, it's not because he's against the best medical care you can give. He's struggling with this, this transition toward professional medicine in which the ones that are being left out are the ones in which the majority of the Methodist people live. And he's fighting for the right to be able to continue to give them medical advice through the book Primitive Physic and others, and for his, his lay preachers to do that. So his deep concern is to make that health care accessible to them. Uh, so I give you the quote on page three about physicians were held in admiration, etc. Et That's what's going on there. He's pushing back against that. It's also part of the reason why in the preface he'll stress that our preference ought to be for naturally occurring medicines, for herbs and stuff that we can go out and find on the hillside versus these compounded chemical things. In other words, what the apothecaries and others are making and selling special. Now, again, long term, I think we'd want to say that work has been tremendously helpful to, to work in chemical medicines and to find the, the ones that would actually be best. But what he's concerned about is those aren't accessible to the poor. But they can go out into the hills and they can find the mushroom or they can find whatever's needed. And so his concern there for that. And it's particularly behind his concern, and this is what I particularly after in this one. It's, it reflects his fascination with electricity. In the middle of the 18th century, the 1700s, is when, quote, Benjamin Franklin discovers electricity and others. Now, they didn't really discover it. It had been around a long time. They simply discovered ways to produce it and then to experiment with it. And when Wesley read the earliest accounts that Benjamin Franklin published, which he published in the Transactions of the Royal Society, and Wesley read it there, one of the things that struck him is that there were some comments about it might have healing benefits. And this struck Wesley as very interesting, because in the 18th century, the physics of the day said matter has nothing, 
no energy about it. Matter is just brute material. And all physics was about matter and motion. Nothing about what we think of today as the, the inner aspects of an atom and, and electrical charges and all that. They didn't know that stuff. So then there was a question, where does electricity come from? If you take two pieces of matter and rub them and all of a sudden electricity, where does it come from? Well, the speculation at the time was, this is the Holy Spirit. There was actually a book published on theology of electricity. <laughs> because what is energy? Well, the Holy Spirit is the one who, who energizes, who is at work in us. And Wesley came to it. This is the Holy Spirit that pervades and gives energy. In, in God, we live and move and have our being. The Spirit's what holds matter together, etc. Well, if this electricity is the Holy Spirit, then just as the Holy Spirit touching our soul helps us, <coughs> maybe the Holy Spirit touching physical ailments will help them. And so, he had one of his members. Well, he, first, he published a book on this. The Desideratum, or electricity made plain and useful. Uh, if you look at it, about two-thirds of the book are simply a collection of testimonies to how electricity had helped heal diseases. That's what he's interested in. He'll explain a bit about how it works in the electrical machine, but he's interested in its potential for health care. Why is he so interested in it? Well, because once you build a little, well, in his book, <coughs> the list of things that electrifying will help, where did he get that list? I love the King's Evil. Yeah, the King's Evil. Uh, what is that? Uh, the King's Evil is epilepsy. Now, how did he build that list? Well, he built a machine. Well, had one of his parishioners build a machine. He actually built several of these, put them in each of the chapels, and whenever anybody came in seeking medical care, one of the things he'd say is, well, let's try electricity on it. You would turn this crank and touch it to the probe, or you could store some in the Leiden jar and then give it. It's not a very heavy shock. It's pretty light. But if you go through in the remedies, he'll, he, he, after electrified, he'll say tried, or he'll say infallible. And he starts arguing certain things, it really helps. Not everything, but certain things. He's actually doing a research program here. He's setting up an organized research program to determine what electricity <coughs> will cure. Now, this can look so funny that we had a student about... 15 years ago over at the Divinity School, I wasn't here yet teaching, he was working with Dr. Heitzenreiter. Students said, oh, that's just ridiculous. How could low voltage electricity help you? I'm gonna write a paper for my class on how this was just all hogwash. The student researched a little over there and then came over and did interviews over here at the hospital. And looking at both how magnetism and low dose electricity and stuff, and wrote a very different paper than he thought he would, and then went on to do his PhD in theology and medicine at Oxford coming out of that. Now, that's not to say that everything Wesley thought it would cure, it would cure, but my key thing, the reason Wesley's so interested in electricity, it's free. It's available to everybody. You just need this machine. It's not under clerical control. It's not under professional control. And if it's the work of the Spirit, it ought to help. So he has a fascination with that. Trajectory three that I notice in Wesley on this is increased prominence of preventive care. Early on, he's all caught up in simply somebody already has an existing injury or an illness, and they come to me and I tell them, this is what you can do to get well. But meanwhile, in the Methodist revival, he's telling them, 
what you need to do is not just pray for your justification. What you've got to ask is, how do I live in the means of grace so that over time I'm being transformed into more and more Christ-likeness? In other words, he sees it as a journey and that you cultivate spiritual wellness, not just look for the remedy to your spiritual disease. You're trying to grow. You're trying to form the virtues, if we were to use a virtue ethic for that. Well, that same thing comes over into then his medical care. I give you a quote there um, to leave this one off. Uh, down to the bottom of page three. There can be no doubt that your bodily disorder greatly affects your mind. Be careful to prevent the disease by diet rather than physic. Using diet, that kind of thing. Regular exercise is a way to go. Notice part of what he's understanding here is the connection between our physical and our emotional and how these can go. But he's particularly emphasizing preventative care. And that's what's going on when he changes the title. When he changes the title from collection of receipts to primitive physic, primitive is used in the Church of England 18th century to mean the way it was in the, in the pristine or pure days. And what he argues in this is humans have known how to cultivate health for a long time. And he, he runs down the list. Regular exercise, good eating, eating the appropriate foods, getting the appropriate amount of sleep, etc., etc. And he adds a long preface, and the preface is all about what you ought to be doing daily in order to uphold your health, to work for wellness, so that you will less often need the remedies that are later in the book. Now, if you have the earache, go use that. But what ought you to be doing to cultivate health? And so he's, he's shifting, and part of what's built in there, you understand, is an emphasis on the uh, legitimacy of of highlighting our human contribution. This is one of the things Wesley gets criticized by his more Calvinist friends about his spiritual life, as they say, it sounds just like you're into not just relying on God's grace, but human effort. Well, in the same way he's saying, you shouldn't just say, God, I want to be well, but I want to trust you for it, so zap me, make me well. You should be out there walking every day. You should be eating the right kinds of food. You should be just as you ought to wait for grace and the means of grace in your spiritual life by prayer and Bible study, etc., you ought to be doing this. So what Wesley's providing here is a manual that isn't just good advice, but it's framed in a theology that is encouraging them to take agency in their care for their health. Uh, I, think, yeah. I, I see how, you, the, how well connected it is to like personal pietism and spiritual disciplines and stuff. And thinking about sort of the spiritual side of small groups and covenant mm -hmm. accountability, did Wesley ever include this type of stuff in that accountability? Well, it's it's built into the society, small group at least, by that virtue of having the visitor of the sick. And it's built in, too, in his emphasis on everybody that we ought to go out and visit the sick at home, not just those who are the professional visitors of the sick, but those that are caring. So there is some sense of that corporate caring for one another, though it's not quite as organized as it is in the in the class meeting for spiritual growth. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, just to show you a couple examples of this exercise, what did Wesley mean when he said you ought to be involved? Well, among other, in his list, the first thing he always emphasized is just walking, going out, walking outside, walking at a good rate of speed for some time. But in the 18th century, there was a popular notion that perhaps the best thing you could do for your health, particularly your respiratory health, 
is to get out and ride every day because the bouncing was assumed to keep your lungs clear. And so there was actually a book published in about 1780 called Dr. Horse on the benefits of riding. Well, that's fine as long as you have a horse and you can get outside. So what if you don't? Well, John Wesley did a lot of horseback riding, but when he started getting older and couldn't ride as often, he decided, I still need that. So he, in his journal, he talked about times I, I rode the wooden horse. And we start thinking, you know, that rocking horse, the child had, but that wasn't what, he would put two barrels down, he'd stretch a plank across, and then he would straddle it, and he would bounce. Just to get that, and he would do that for half an hour. Well, that kind of messes up the front room. So finally one of his parishioners built him a chamber horse, is what it's called. It's a chair, it's a little hard to see there, but the seat's that high because there's about four layers and there are baffles. So when you sit on it, it slowly lets you down, and then you stand up, and it slowly lets you down, and you stand up. And so you're getting the bouncing of riding a horse, but you can. Do, but it's a nice-looking piece of furniture you can have in your front room. This is the chamber horse that, when, Char when Charles Wesley is nearing the end of his life, John writes to the guy that's taking care of him and says, make sure he rides the horse every day. Well, that's what he wants him to be doing, is getting that exercise. Or, sometimes you'll be reading in Wesley, and you'll say, Make sure you're using the dumbbell. Was John Wesley into powerlifting? <laughs> well, you have to remember what dumbbell meant originally. A dumbbell is a bell that doesn't ring, a bell that makes no sound. Okay, Church of England. You would ring the bell to call them in. In the bigger churches, they'd have a rank of bells, and you would ring the ranks. And lot, well, those are heavy, and you're pulling up. They, they soon discovered this is good cardiovascular exercise. But if you went and just started ringing the church bells, pretty soon the whole neighborhood's up and on. Right? <laughs> so even for practicing ringing the ranks, the big cathedrals had a practice chamber where they had bells without clappers in them. And you would pull, you still had the weight, but there was no sound. That was a dumbbell. Well, that's nice if you have a church nearby, but what if you want to do it in your home? This is actually a picture of one that was found in the home of John Fletcher, a close friend of John Wesley. It's up in the attic. There's a hole here going down into the room below. You have a, think of a yo-yo here upside down. You have a rope attached to the bolt. Goes round, 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 and then hangs down and goes down to the room below. As you pull on it, there's some resistance because you've got these weights out here. But when you get to the bottom, what's it going to do? Momentum, right? It's going to keep, and it's going to run it up the other side. And you pull it down, and it's going to pull it back up. And pretty soon, you've got a cardiovascular exercise that can go on for however long. But if you take this bar out, because the spindle breaks or something, and lay it down on the table, what do you have? A barbell. That's how the word historically came to mean that. But this is what it meant at first. But the point is, again, Wesley is saying this kind of regular exercise you ought to see as something you owe yourself and you owe God and you owe others. So he's building a theology about how care for health is is not something that is distracting us from our heavenly goal, but is central to our spiritual life. Uh, the other thing you'll find in that preface is 
the specific diet Wesley recommends is cold vegetables, and he emphasizes cold bathing, etc. This may puzzle you why everything's cold, but at, at that time, in one of the standard books on medicine, the argument was the best diet is one that matches the climate in which you live. So if you live in a hot climate, you ought to eat lots of spicy food, take warm baths, drink warm drinks, etc. But if you live in a cold climate, like England, it ought to be this. And so again, this isn't just something he's taking, make, take, making up or taking from popular, he's taking it right out of a standard text that we ought to do that. And then just one last point. Perhaps, well, I, I pointed out already how in Charles Wesley, there was a tendency to, to see death as what is desired. What do I want? To love my God and die. John was, is, is instead, and, and consistently in his writing, says, no, what you ought to seek to do is live the fullness of your life as a steward of God. Don't seek an earthly death. Seek to cultivate life, to enjoy it. But at the same time, he always reminded them, but this life is not your final goal. And death is not something to be feared. And so there was a tradition in Methodism of what they called the good death. That when it became clear the illness you had was not when you could treat, you ought not to grasp or cling to life, but you ought to welcome God and, and that reception of the death. So that clear that life and health in this world were a penultimate value, not finally the ultimate value. In some ways, I think we live on the opposite side of that. Wesley found himself primarily needing to say to people, caring about your health matters, and it's spiritually okay to do so. We may live on the side where it's the, the highest goal is holding on to life no matter what, and maybe it's this trajectory that we may need to hear more from. But A few thoughts on, our Wesleyan, on the Wesleyan roots of concern for health and wellness uh, and its theological grounding. Uh, ready for discussion. Yeah. Randy, what, where was the place in Wesley's, John Wesley's um, approach to health for the ministry of healing through prayer uh, Great question. He, he holds together, it's an important point to make, I think. He holds together reliance upon God and divine intervention. Uh, so he'll say, in addition to all your other medicines, always use that best medicine, prayer. But what he refuses to do is play them off against each other, which is what you get in some forms of the Puritan tradition, where prove that you trust in God, not in human means, by relying on prayer alone and not calling in the physician. In later Methodist history, uh, there will be a split that emerges right within the Methodist tradition between the Pentecostal tradition, which also emphasizes Holy Spirit. That it's the connection to the emphasis on the Holy Spirit that holds them together. It will split between the Pentecostal and the mainline Methodist. And one of the ways that split will play out is that you can watch in mainline Methodist all the emphasis on healthcare efforts and a declining emphasis on prayer. Whereas Pentecostal, almost directly over against that, will in several of its forms say, no, we ought to rely on prayer alone. When does that start to grow up? That's, that's once we get over here to the U.S. in the middle part of the 1800s. 
that we really can watch that happen. Uh, the debate had, for example, there had been a debate in the Church of England uh, between the camps and about using, do you use forms of prayer or do you pray spirit-led only? Well, it's that same kind of thing. Of do, you, do you rely on human-designed efforts or are only that spontaneous thing that shows you're trusting God alone? And Methodism, one of its characteristics, would say, we'll use both. We will refuse to polarize those two because it reflects their underlying anthropology that, that God empowers us but upholds and respects the integrity of our contribution. To the process of life. Yeah. Um, going back to the trajectory one, did mm -hmm. you um, particularly Charles Wesley's language about um, you know it's best if you live a short, faithful life and that everything is possible and mm -hmm. heaven? Um, and that whole kind of theology, what would be the understanding then of Jesus's care for the sick? Well, one of the realities of, of reading scripture is that certain verses will stand out to you because they fit the screen that you're bringing or the interpretive set of assumptions. Others just won't appear that much. And, and what will happen in this is they won't deny that, but then they'll stress. And, and partly it's because they live in a setting where they know that, that well, 50% infant mortality, 50% of children die by the time they, before they reach the age of two, where there's so much death, etc., they'll say that's more the exception the reality is many of this and we're trying to deal with how do we comfort parents whose child has died well God's taken them before they reach the age of accountability and so they're guaranteed salvation this is what Charles will say if God, if they, your child dies young they were fortunate because they're automatically going to heaven he doesn't believe they have inherited guilt uh, so uh, they're going to heaven So they, they, they just don't put as much emphasis on those verses. I should say, um, using Charles as the example here is to put it under a magnifying glass because while there is this tendency in that broad Puritan tradition, Charles plays it up higher than many. Uh, there have been a couple of Wesley scholars who've tried to argue that if Charles were alive today, we'd diagnose him as manic depressive. And if you read his journal, you'll see why. There'll be days he's just... well. He proposes to his wife, and she says yes. His future wife, she says yes. His journal, he's top of the moon. Two days later, he's saying, I wish I was dead. I mean, just there were some significant swings. And so even his daughter said at the end of his life that my father always had a, less of a connection to this world and more to the next than, than the rest of us. So Charles may overplay it there just a bit. You mentioned the Right. Oh, exactly. So what do you think are the effects or consequences of the Unfortunately, I think what replaced it in many up until was a tendency to specialize and, and bifurcate and just say, we'll focus on spiritual stuff and we'll leave to the other. See, let me tell you the Methodist perspective. Wesley expected his preachers to both give medical advice and preach. 
when the professionalization catches up with that, and it catches up with it over here in North America, when, when they first set up the Methodist Church, the ordained clergy were supposed to give medical advice and preach, but before long, there were enough doctors in town, they said, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. Well, Methodist pastors then often faced a real identity crisis because they could either continue to be a pastor or they could get off the horse and become a, a medical practitioner. And many of them did. They chose to quit preaching and do that. Uh, in, indeed, the first one to set up an osteopathy that was a Methodist preacher that sets it up. Um, but that sense of, of putting it into silos, I think, too often became the replacement. Uh, and, and a lack of enough conversation about the ways in which the spiritual impacts the physical and the physical the spiritual. Uh, we're still working, I think, to, to build that more holistic sense in theological education now. Um, so part of it... But, but what you see here is it, it's not just a matter of we need to improve the science. Finally, you're dealing with an underlying set of assumptions, a theology, whether it's a very sophisticated one or not, a theology about how they see the place of health and their overall view of what's valued in life. Uh, that's what I like about uh, the current chancellor's approach to holistic care in Durham, for example, that and engage in that is that you're going out to shape a way of thinking as well as just offer means of treatment. <coughs> Other questions, reflections? So, um, two weeks ago we had a seminar uh, that talked about kind of the temporary United Methodist Church and a global health campaign in the Mackinac mm-hmm. area. And uh, it, it kind of highlighted the ways in which certain forms of kind of um, utilitarian arrangements around progress and public health have kind of captured some of the Methodist imagination, mm-hmm. um, perhaps in ways that play out complexly around, you know, first and third world realities. But, right. but, but just this idea of kind of um, being captured by the idea of kind of medical and health progress. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, it seems almost irresistible. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering say a bit more about, I mean, you mentioned in your fourth you know, uh, trajectory, perhaps you need to check some of the overemphasis on health, but mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't know that Wesley felt that the Holy Spirit did not electricity, but that's a great story of mm-hmm. uh, certainly the scientific progress captures his theological imagination. Um, mm-hmm. And and help me think about Wesley and Mozart resisting that. I mean, you, yeah. you mentioned some of the ends, but... Well, yeah. Let me start first with Wesley and then on the Methodist. Wesley himself was resisting it by the very title of primitive physics because he was wanting to say the best ways of doing this are the ways that have been there from the very beginning because God put the stuff in the plants that there. And he tends to to be hesitant about these moves to more uh, specialized scientific advances. Now, personally, I, I think that reflects a failure in his anthropology because other places he'll talk about us humans participating with God is good that's the side that comes over. When it gets to North America, it, the Methodist emphasis on spreading holiness across the land and taking that to mean not just their spirit but their body becomes the mission of the church. And it comes just at a time when you've got this kind of optimistic, enlightenment mindset in North America wedded to a theology that we call post-millennialism, the notion we're going to bring in a perfect time of life through the work of the spirit. And so when Methodists spread across the U.S., in about they build a church in every town, and in about every third town they build a college to train doctors and lawyers and all this stuff. 
In about every fifth town, they built a hospital, particularly to offer this medical care and to invest in. So they, they, they jumped on board about, we will train up the scientists who will make the new medicines. So you do get an almost unproblematic baptizing of whatever comes next is best uh, that comes along there later in American medicine. And, and undoubtedly, some, some very good things come out of that. But it can also take on, and it does, a rather imperialistic tone. We're going to show this to be the Christian nation, and then we're going to take that to the rest of the world. Uh, there, John Wesley can be a helpful resource because his time in North America convinced him that England was doing more harm than good over here, and in particular, more harm than good to the cause of Christ because we were living less Christ-like than the Native Americans already here. And so he was a critic of that kind of sense that we are the ones. He was actually against foreign missions for Methodists because he said we shouldn't send them out to the rest of the world until we get them straight here. And we're not there yet. This, this is all really interesting. Lots of connections in lots of ways. And I think about in the U.S., the Cotton Mather and the Puritans also had this tradition of the pastor was also the one who was a medical practitioner. And mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of links between the Royal College of Physicians and American medical education in terms of the Flexner Report. And so mm -hmm. there's lots of really interesting. Can you talk about Wesley and alcohol? Mm -hmm. uh, so he, he was raised in a family that was, it was very clear, alcohol's in the Bible. But their assumption was that what we're talking about here are beers and wines, not heavily uh, distilled. And the rule that their mother gave them growing up was two cups is fine, three is sin. So they, a, a sense of which, which temperance. Is what, which is what daughters are instructed to say now, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it, it, the, it's a model of temperance or temperate usage. Wesley became convinced that distilled liquor, that is rum, rye, this kind of thing, was the bane of England and it, because he thought it takes away our human ability. We can handle and keep control of use of beers or wines, but distilled liquor is too strong and it takes away our human uh, control. So Methodists were called to temperate use of beers and wines and, and to avoiding all distilled liquors except for medicinal uses. When you get over here to North America, and it's part of, again, of that, of that uh, millennialist mindset we're trying to bring into perfect society, there's a deep recognition, I think, of two realities. One is how much the abuse of alcohol is connected to the abuse of women and children. And the second is that it's not just distilled liquors that can... In other words, a deeper sense of appreciation that any drinking can affect some. It's only in North America in the 1850s that you get the emergence of the teetotal movement, the movement that says that as Methodists we will avoid all alcohol. We'll even get it out of the communion cup. And it's actually a, a Methodist dentist who developed Welch, the brother of a Methodist bishop who develops Welch's grape juice, pasteurized so that it doesn't have to be fermented. So you do then get a, a period of time during which the Methodist church is teetotal. That has since backed off of that, though in some of the holiness churches you still have that teetotal thing. My understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that it, it had a lot to do with Wesley observing neighborhoods in London and elsewhere where there was all of a sudden massive problems of, of what we would now basically label substance abuse, but it was just still exactly. that were destroying 
social fabrics and neighborhoods and people were being kept in poverty. And it was like, it was as much a critique of the distilleries as it was of it was. individual yeah. Christians. Who and were that they were taking, well, and if you read his thoughts on the present scarcity of provisions, one of the points he makes is we can't even create enough food, bread to feed our people in the 1770s, and you're using it instead to make distilled liquor. Yeah. And that gets the, the, the hierarchy of needs out of line. So, so again, even though he would then himself brew his own beer in, in the basement of his, of his house in London, yeah. so he's not a teetotaler, but that sense of what's the right hierarchy, um, it's very clear. And it's very clear he connects the abuse of drinking to the problems, not only of uh, not enough food, but of abuse of women and children. Um, he, he accounts that or recounts it several times over. Well, to the degree that he's clear that um, someone who has is taken over by uh, drinking distilled liquor, in a sense, is ceasing to be fully human, and the behaviors that follow in, in incorporate others. That's when he does. In the tract on the present scarcity provisions, his argument that it's wrong for a nation to allow us to be devoting grains to distilling at a time we can't feed the people. I mean, that's a structural connection he makes very specific, though it's specific to one particular time when there's a famine. I do think that in general, uh, part of it has to be what we do in our teaching and preaching about cultivating a proper sense of appreciation for how care for the body is part of our, our responsibility to God and others. Uh, but put in, that, put in the context of both proper care for the body and, and that this is done, and that this ought to be done mainly through how we promote wellness, not just how we rely upon the latest pill or whatever. I think cultivating that as a sense of this is part of our spiritual commitment. At the same time, I think we have to challenge the notion that only those who are perfectly well and fit are you know, ideal or happy. Uh, we can almost get too much of that sometimes. But uh, in a nation where most of our health needs are, are direct, or a high percentage are directly connected to inadequate exercise and wrong kinds of eating, so that you get overweightness, hypertension, all that. A lot of it comes back to just how do you help people to see that this isn't just good advice from your doctor. As a Christian, you ought to see this as part of your accountability in your ongoing walk with God and with others. We tend to just stay away from the issue of preaching and just preach on, quote, spiritual topics. Pastor to, to strike back in a snarky way. 
I tell, okay, in that case, I'd say read the sermon, The Uses of Money, because the first thing you'll find in that sermon is Wesley's emphasis, there's no such thing as private property. Everything belongs to God. God puts it in our hands as stewards, and God's guideline is the minute we've cared for our needs, all the rest ought to go to others for their needs. Whereas what's happening in the, the prosperity gospel, it seems to me, is it's John Locke who's winning who says, whatever's mine is mine, and I can use it however I want, and equates property with happiness. Well, that's good on wealth. I said health and wealth. Well, there, in most of the health and wealth gospel, it's still, it's framed in the more charismatic Pentecostal form of God wants to give you health, and if you'll just name it and claim it, you'll get it. So it's this kind of automatic intervention and reliance solely on God alone for it. And what I would point out is Wesley's wanting to say, you should pray, but you should also be dieting, exercising, etc. So he's calling for a role for our accountability within that in a way that doesn't polarize those two. Uh, I think Kate Bowler's book on this points out very strongly how you get that side of, of health care. shaped by the art of dying materials that were present in the 18th century. And the first, I mean, the, the central characteristic book, by the way, there's there's a nice book by Peter Vogt on that, on living and dying well, and then Alan Verhey has written on this, who is one of our professors. Might look but I mean, the key is, if you've lived well, so that you come to that point of death not regretting, then death itself can be something that you can embrace. Uh, it, it's not that there's some secret so much as that you've framed a life where you you come to death without the regret of I, I haven't done this or I, and so that call to to be living a life in which you in both your relationships to others and yourself have been cultivating that sense of well-being uh, that's what he sees as the essence of the good death the characteristic he describes as the good death of Methodist death is they don't <coughs> die in fear they don't die in fear. Um, they don't cling to life. Uh, and I give a couple books that collect some of the early Methodist death stories if you want to look at them. Uh, I guess a follow-up question would be for someone who hasn't done that work of preparing and stewarding well. That's a great question. In the art of dying material, the standard response was there's no deathbed conversions. <laughs> so they tend to say, if you haven't done the work, then too bad. You're going to have a bad death. John and Charles became convinced there can't, God can, quote, cut short the work. God can minister. So that part of the role then of the pastor at the death site, and, and it wasn't just those dying normally, but they had a special ministry to those who were condemned to die at jail the ones who were going to be put to death, that they would spend the nights before with them in prayer and all trying to help them get to that point before they actually died. So they believed it was possible to have that kind of a more dramatic conversion. But what they didn't want to do is encourage you to just wait till then. You don't need to worry about it until then. They, their primary emphasis was on cultivating a life.
Well, good. Well, if any other questions or reflections come up that I can be of help with, always feel free to be in contact with me. My email is listed on the web page of the different schools. Happy this is going to be a thank you. Thank you.